my name's Justin McClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're throwing a few punches, a few kicks, we may even break some things, because we're talking about action movies. Specifically, action movies made with no money. This None. is a topic that you brought to the mm. podcast. What fascinates you about this area? Well, so... I was thinking about, like, when did I fall in love with action movies? Like, specifically, the genre meant something to me. Because when you're growing up as a kid, stuff like Schwarzenegger's Terminator 2, they're there, and you can enjoy them. But I don't know if I was, like, conscious that there were a genre in of themselves. Michael Dudikoff. <laughs> uh, uh, Chuck Norris. All the greats. <laughs> yeah. But it was with Hong Kong cinema that I instantly became aware of, like, wow, there's a perfected way to do this. One that North America, at the time that I was watching these movies, was very slowly realizing, oh, we could steal their style and do it in Matrix ripoff movies. By the way, I recently watched Octopussy, mm -hmm. which I had never seen before, and just watching this thing, I was thinking, no wonder Hong Kong action movies took the world by storm, because, like, what, what the hell is this? It's just like Roger Moore in front of rear projection, you know. And at the same time, it took so long for America to just wake up to like, oh, wow, people like uh, the Chinese know how to shoot action scenes, even though that when China would come to America, the Americans would be like, hey, get out of the way. We know how to do it and you don't. Mm. That it was still looked down upon as like a lesser genre or a lesser technical expertise. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, around the early 2000s, when I was starting to fall in love with this stuff, uh, there was these communities popping up online of people just shooting their own stuff. Now, there's like a dozen groups I can name off the top of my head and we'll get into it as we go along. But I suddenly realized that like Action filmmaking is an expertise that anyone could do. Like, if you were dedicated and you had an understanding of the grammar and the, had some physical capabilities, you could shoot something that was as good as Hong Kong cinema. You know, you saying that sounds counterintuitive to me. The sorts of movies that you look at them and say anyone can do that, typically they're things like clerks or mm -hmm. a really lo-fi indie movie like that those tend to be the ones that inspire you know slacker those inspire people to make their own movies but it's like a catch-22 because while anybody can do it like if you look at the stunt people films and how complex and amazing they are and we'll talk about this a little bit later as well people don't appreciate it that's the thing right uh -huh. is like clerks people can go oh ho, it's a comedy it's funny even though it's technically rough it doesn't matter while action movies like people don't often have I, I don't know the appreciation they take it for granted they take it of. for granted yeah. essentially like oh that was fun not knowing like what goes into it and how the filmmakers are approaching it to give you like the best product that they can well watching the movies that we watched for the podcast this week i was reminded that action movies are very universal mm -hmm. like there's a reason they are the most popular genre in the world don't quote me on that they might not actually be but i think they are and uh, like when you pick up a camera as a kid mm -hmm. usually the first thing you do is either a superhero film or an action film you exactly. pretend that you have guns and war because there's something so visceral about an action film especially mm -hmm. martial arts films that's understandable across all countries and there are certain indie movies like say clerks where you look at that and you say i can do that mm -hmm. but then there are other movies like drunken master where you look at it and say i want to do that exactly and like the the difference between getting your friends and doing a martial arts sequence and it looking good is vast. It's <laughs> huge. But at the same time, like, it's a grammar that you have to understand to be able to pull it off, even though people don't appreciate it. So the first one we're going to talk about is one that Will brought to the table. 
one that I've always been curious about called The Deadly Art of Survival, a movie from 1979 uh, directed by Charlie Ahern, who later went on to do a well-regarded documentary about hip-hop called Wild Style. This movie emerged from New York in sort of the no-wave era. So what was the no-wave era? Sort of like artists and filmmakers and musicians in the Lower East Side, kind of at the time when the city was bankrupt and it was very cheap for artists to live there. Um, And, you know, like, for example, Jean-Michel Basquiat emerged in that era. Filmmakers like Nick Zed and Richard Kern, musicians Mm -hmm. like Lydia Lunch. Oftentimes people doing sort of like transgressive art as well this movie isn't exactly transgressive but it's set against the backdrop of new york poverty but it also emerges from this world of you know kung fu movie appreciation and the director charlie ahern had no experience telling narrative stories before i believe it was the star of the film that approached him and said hey could you make a martial arts picture for me because i'm currently running a dojo for at-risk youth Well, I was reminded watching this movie that in the 70s, until today, in fact, many of the people who appreciate martial arts movies most are uh, working class people and people from ethnic minorities. Yeah, people have written a lot of papers about this. The idea that like black audiences really appreciated the films of people like Bruce Lee because it was like taking it to the man in a very visceral way. Yeah, so like in Fist of Fury, when Bruce Lee is standing up for the Chinese against the Japanese occupiers, you can put whatever your own oppression is mm-hmm. onto that. So this movie, uh, which follows the exploits of Nathan Ingram, his actual name, he's a karate instructor who fights a rival dojo, which is actually just a front for a drug operation. Uh, but a lot of the early conversations in this movie are, you know, people in these uh, tenements and the social housing talking about, oh, did you see the Bruce Lee movie? Oh, wasn't it great? And so- we should point out that this is also a film shot on Super 8. Uh, by a filmmaker who doesn't quite know how to put a movie together, so we often shoot scenes in one long take. The plot is very eventful, but you wouldn't necessarily realize that watching it at any given moment, because Charlie Ahern in his long takes often captures moments of just quotidian detail. You yeah, know. it often starts in a close-up and zooms out slowly through the scene. And the dialogue is rather muffled, so you have to pay attention a bit to well, realize Well, I heard very clearly the whirring of the Super 8 camera <laughs> in the shot the entire time. And every now and then, not as often as you would expect, mm-hmm. there is a kung fu or karate fight scene, often recorded from a long distance. Like, there's one where it's like the camera is on a rooftop and it's filming a rooftop like a couple of rooftops away yeah and it's shaky because he's trying to keep like the fighters in frame and it's funny because like most kung fu scenes you see in movies have cool music around them cool camera angles but when you see it like this god's eye view rigorous objectivity and they're just in public and they're surrounded by passers-by it's it's funny i got really excited when the film started with nathan ingram on a black screen and he turns toward the camera and go you're watching the deadly art of survival because because it would have cost too much to have titles put on yes. the film. That's why the film has almost no sound effects and no music unless it's playing like in the background. But at the same time, you can tell that they were influenced by martial arts pictures that they were seeing. Like there's a little bit of a training montage that happens yes. against a kind of sc- 
scummy yellow wall that you'd find at like a rec center somewhere to imitate those colored walls you'd see in martial arts pictures when they're doing their moves at the beginning of it. There's also that great subplot with these two ninjas that the evil (laughs) dojo has hired to, you know, pursue our hero where they're just like kids in shitty ninja garb. Like, and you remember that the ninja costume is the easiest Halloween costume to do. Yeah, it's right up there with the ghost. All you need is a hoodie. <laughs> and the ninjas, like, steal hats and stuff like that, or sandwiches. And at one point, it just cuts to them rolling on the ground, fighting each other with no narrative context before just cutting back to our main hero doing whatever he's doing. So, like, all the movies we'll talk about in this podcast, this movie has kind of a let's-put-on-a-show quality mm-hmm. to it. It's probably the least entertaining of the movies we talked about. Well, it's, it's the least technically competent, The uh, probably the most loose in its structure but at the same time it's the one that feels probably the most lived in like this feels like New York there's a lot of scenes of characters just doing stuff on the streets that at once are padding to make it at least an hour which it kind of clocks around Mm -hmm. at the same time you also get this sense of like Nathan Ingram going about his day he's teaching like kids like in public how to do martial arts and stuff like that and it really feels kind of like the community coming together to give this like sincere expression not only of like almost like pride in their community (laughs) but also of like a sincere appreciation of martial arts cinema this would fall into the category of the amateur uh zero budget martial arts film where it's just a bunch of people that are really passionate about what they're doing like nathan ingram was obviously a talented martial artist Mm -hmm. but the filmmakers that he was working with had no idea how to portray that on screen so the fights are a little clunky yes and there's like you said not many of them uh nathan ingram looking up uh, information on him he was actually awarded a medal in 1981 by Ed Koch because he stopped a bank robbery barehanded oh very nice (laughs) it's like where's that movie (laughs) about his life (laughs) Deadly Art of Survival is definitely a interesting object that I would not recommend as an action film if someone was looking for something like exciting that was made for no money now this is a movie that emerges from kind of the first wave of kung fu movies Mm -hmm. in America the other two movies we watched emerge more from like Jackie Chan particularly but the sort of stuff that was popular in the 90s in America. I think that like Jackie Chan is the go-to point for anybody post like 90s that was mm-hmm. doing martial arts in their backyard because his style was so easy to explain mm-hmm. that it was more like acrobatic and it could be funny and I think that's mm-hmm. what like teenagers really responded yeah. to. and he's such a likable guy mm-hmm. you can, he's very easy to project yourself. He's easy to identify with in a way that Bruce Lee isn't. So uh, I recommended a film to Will called Deathless, directed, starring, written, choreographed, shot, edited by Ara Payaya. Who also dubs all the voices. He dubs all the voices, (laughs) which is crazy. And he is not like a master of voices by any stretch of the imagination. I had no idea what this movie was going into it. (laughs) So this guy I had heard about back in the day where I was like surfing sites like KungFuCinema.com. He made a series of shorts called Dubbed and Dangerous, where it was him doing some Jackie Chan shtick. And there were little like 10, 30 hour long. And they made a little bit of an impact when they were released but i remember watching them and going 
this is not that good. Like, my standards were so high at the time mm-hmm. that I was like, eh, this guy, he's an amateur. I'd rather just watch some Jackie Chan or something else. Mm-hmm. But now, in time, I can appreciate what he's doing. Well, now Jackie Chan is an old man. Yes. He's very tired, and there, nobody has come along to re- replace him. Uh, except for uh, this guy from <laughs> Scotland who decided to pick up a camera and go, I'm going to do Jackie Chan stick for essentially myself, I guess. Yeah, it's hard to know like what audience this was intended for. It's also even hard to know like how sincere he is because there are times when it feels like he's actually trying to do a real action movie and times when it looks like kind of a really half-hearted Mad Magazine parody. So I've listened to interviews with the director, Ara Payaya, and he talks about it so seriously (laughs) like there's no trace of like oh i understand what i'm doing like i'm like copying jackie chan he'll like be watching a sequence and go ah here we have a stone cold classic sequence where i fight this guy and then just kind of flopping at each other and (laughs) doing a kind of amateur martial arts so i think he takes it like very seriously which is probably why in the movie when martial arts do break out they're as kind of insane and dangerous as they are. He's not a charismatic screen presence. No, yeah. he is not. Uh, but he's very good at doing these stunts. It should be noted that this movie, Death List, he shot it himself as well. How does he do it when he's in front of the camera? Well, he puts it on a tripod and then he goes <laughs> out and whoever he has, he does his stunts. The reason he dubs every voice may be because no one wants to come back to dub their voices. Like this is a true independent on a, like a different level that the deadly art of survival is because now we're in the era of digital technology where you can essentially do tons of stuff for very little money. That means you even have to put more things together. Like we can laugh at uh, deadly art of survival when the boom mic falls into frame there's not a boom mic within a hundred miles in something like death list what's death list about okay are you able to summarize the plot no i'm not it's just a pastiche of all the cliches like there's a long training sequence Mm -hmm. where he does you know drunken master style training stuff Uh, he wants revenge as well and then at one point he's a samurai and there's some like gory kind of like appendages that are cut off from the dollar store like car racing scene now Uh, we should point out that this movie death list about like an hour hour in i went what is this this makes no sense an hour into this 63 minute movie yes (laughs) okay well okay maybe not an hour maybe more like 10 minutes (laughs) and suddenly it cut to footage that looked nothing like the rest of the movie and i went wait a minute i've seen this action scene it's from dubbed and dangerous (laughs) three so just looking through his other movies that i have i realized that deathless was edited together principally from a movie called night driver which was like a night rider ripoff and tried to be made i guess as seriously as possible so there's no talking car in it anymore Mm. and a bunch more action scenes but it is incomprehensible like you can't I don't have no idea what's going on. And it ends in a way where I'm like, huh? I guess it's over. Yes. But that's not what we came for. And that's something that we should talk about that, like, as we're going into uh, films that actually have impressive martial arts, is that when we watch, like, Jackie Chan or Sammo Hung, we give them a pass when it comes to sequences that are not, like, beat-em-ups. Because a lot of that stuff is very shaky. And I have to say I'm less inclined to give Ari Payaya or Eric Jacobus, Mm -hmm. who directed the next movie we'll talk about, Contour. I'm less inclined to give them a pass. Really? And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's snobbery or it's just the fact that because they're so obviously imitating, Mm -hmm. you know, Jackie Chan, it it feels like it's in quotation marks. Or is it... I, I think it's a mixture of both. And I also think it's probably like an underlying prejudiceness of like, oh, we give a pass to 
you know, filmmakers that we we don't understand their language, but when we see something in English, we expect something specific. Maybe. But don't you feel there's something about the deadly art of survival? Mm-hmm. While it's not as good a movie as Contour, there's something about it that feels kind of more true and authentic than Contour does. I don't know about that. I, I just think that the way that they approach it, they're taking it very seriously, and I think that the sequences between the fighting may interest them less. Yeah. And, like, they're kind of comedic sensibilities during those scenes because almost all of these films are comedies Mm -hmm. in like because that's what you do when you do like a kung fu action film with your friends Mm -hmm. and that like that comedy often feels like the stuff that you would do with your pals so like funny wigs accents like Mm -hmm. dubbing all the voices it's not funny to anyone else but you yeah and your immediate circle yeah i I think that's it Uh, i have to say i didn't laugh a lot watching these movies but Deathless, like suddenly out of nowhere, like a crazy action scene happens oh, yeah. with a bunch of cars. And they're very derivative of Jackie Chan, yes. uh, which, you know, isn't such a bad thing. I mean, he's this guy has internalized the Jackie Chan formula of build an action scene around a specific location mm-hmm. and a lot of props. So there are a couple of stunts that he takes right out of Jackie Chan. Like there's an amazing stunt where like a car is moving towards him and he like runs up onto the car over the hood you know over the roof of the car and then off which Jackie Chan does in one of his movies or there's a sequence where a bunch of goons are attacking him and he's around a car and they keep smashing every single window as he rolls and jumps and he keeps going through the windows and like what's interesting about zero budget martial arts film is that there's a level of danger that's not always present in Hong Kong stuff because Mm -hmm. in Hong Kong like they know what they're doing mm. in zero budget stuff, especially in like death list. You have a, a guy who's doing all this stuff with real glass and real cars mm. and like no padding. Cause he's just doing it all himself. So there's like an impressiveness there that always kind of amazes me when mm. I see one. I'm like, Oh wow. I can't believe he did that. Yeah. Which is kind of absent when I watch something by Sam Hong where the stunts could be crazy, but I know that probably nobody died. <laughs> you know, another difference between death list and contour, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll get into in a moment is contour feels like a lot of friends getting together it has a bit of an almost like jackass quality to it (laughs) yeah whereas death list feels like the work of one insane man yeah it's like uh like an egoist like yeah like i don't want to like paint him in a negative light but it's obviously a guy who's like well i can do all this stuff whereas with contour it's like a bunch of buddies got together and they're kind of like egging each other on Mm -hmm. and they're they're bringing out the best in each other well so arapaya what amazes me the most is that he never stopped making movies. He recently directed two films, Skin Traffic and Instant Deaths, which were made in 2015 and 2017, respectively. And Skin Traffic had Gary Daniels, Mickey Rourke, Michael Madsen. Oh, man. And all doing uh, kind of martial arts, but like a lamer version of what he does himself. Is he in it? Uh, no, he is not. Oh, I don't believe bad. so. I would but, have loved to have seen him share the screen with those <laughs> those guys. But he kept making movies because even after Night Driver, he made Maximum Impact, The Suppressor. Like, I think that there's a lack of self-awareness there because these are very generic action titles that are obviously representing something that he likes. Well, I like that he has this creative drive. <laughs> yes. And oftentimes the creative drive is indistinguishable from uh, narcissism. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, if you're the, putting something out into the world, you're probably a little self-centered. <laughs> yeah, you have to be. Yeah. Especially if you just keep making these martial arts pictures for, I guess, your families and friends and like yeah. weirdos like me on the internet that may stumble upon them and go, eh, it's not yeah. good enough until 10 years later. <laughs> but creativity is a good thing and I admire it. <laughs> yeah, it is. But now let's get to Contour because this is the one that I really wanted to talk about because it's a movie that I enjoy so much and that nobody else knows about. Mm -hmm. And it's just baffling to me, but it comes down to, again, that like action 
and especially really good choreograph action has no immediate value to most viewers. Well, maybe the other reason why this movie isn't appreciated as much is it's like a great, great DIY action movie. Yes. But people might look at that and then they might look at like a, a real action movie. That That's not a, the nice way to put it. No. A professional action movie, a, yeah. a studio or, or yeah. yeah, a glossy action movie. And they might say, well, why don't I just watch that instead? So I think that maybe the big difference is that like something like Clerks, people can accept and then something like Contour, they can't. Yeah. Because, like, the expectations when you come to a genre piece are different. But, like, you can get a great action scene similar to the ones from Contour in a movie like Project A. Yes. But you can't get Kevin Smith's dialogue in anybody else's movies. I know, but, like, you know an act... I mean? but you I'm, can't... Playing, I'm playing devil's actor I know you are. I really like good. Contour. Is that, like, that kind of action in a North American context, mm-hmm. like doesn't exist right so it's also a matter of like where it's coming from i feel Mm -hmm. because like while contour its action is crazy nobody else was doing it like that Mm -hmm. and probably because it obviously couldn't sell because you can make a film like a star stone cold steve austin that's barely a movie and people will just eat it up so it makes you wonder if the idea of an action scene is more important than actually the content of an action scene yeah and also i think people like their stars Mm -hmm. you know they like stone cold steve austin and they like the legitimacy of something that looks like it's real yeah even if it's not as good as something that looks a little more amateur but something like contour, like the realness there is present in different ways, like every crazy stunt and fall that they do in this movie. Well, let's do away with the plot of the movie, first of all. Mm. It's made by Eric Jacobus and a team of friends who yeah. call themselves the Stunt Guys. Uh, the Stunt People. The Stunt People. And it's about a former career criminal who messes up a job and is stuck becoming a tour guide of the San Francisco area. But one day he finds himself caught in this uh oh, such a complex web this complex of... web involving like a stolen tape yeah which is somehow going to lead to uh, a foreign country's government being overthrown <laughs> yes. or something and he's it ca- doesn't matter <laughs> and he's carrying around these people who he's supposed to be touring mm-hmm. as he you know goes into the criminal underworld now like most martial arts pictures the plot doesn't matter. Like, wheels on meals. Like, what is the plot of that movie? Mm-hmm. They got uh, wheels and they got meals and on them. And they're in Rome. Yeah. And they're sword fighting people. Yeah. Like, it doesn't really matter. All that matters is, like, the storytelling was in fight scenes. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time that I watched this, my jaw literally went, whoa. Because, like, you don't expect this kind of stuff. And looking deeper into the making of the movie, the final climax of the film took 60 days to shoot. <laughs> like, that is insane. Well, that's like a Hong Kong movie where they build yeah. it around the action scenes and they mm-hmm. can spend months shooting the action scenes and then the dialogue scenes. Doesn't really matter it's that much. It's an afterthought. They do yeah. it in a week. Because they know that the audiences who are going to come and see this movie, all they're going to care about is the action. But jumping back a little bit, uh, I actually knew Eric Jacobus because he was releasing shorts on the internet. Like back in the day when I was going to places like Kung Fu Cult Cinema, which sadly, rest in peace, does not exist anymore. I remember but... that website. And at the time, he was making shorts like Undercut, which actually got a bunch of buzz for it because it was like nominated for some kind of MTV Movie Award uh, in 2006. I don't know which one. Wow, I, I don't really know of the MTV Movie Awards as honoring independent films. <laughs> yeah, I think it was maybe more of like an online thing sure. and you could put it under that banner. But Eric Jacobus also ran a stunt people website that reviewed Hong Kong action cinema. Mm. And it doesn't exist anymore, I don't believe, but it was the only website that would break down every Hong Kong action film and it reviewed seemingly every one 
by action scene <laughs> and would actually rate them like, oh, like there's a lot of this, there's a lot of that, with like photos, or this is a great prop fight and they use these props. So they were approaching Hong Kong action in an analytical fashion that nobody else did or really does anymore. Yeah, like a close reading. Yeah, yeah like yeah. the action was really the meat of the film for them, not the picture as a whole, but these individual sequences. This movie, Contour, really delivers yes. action, by the way. Like a, a substantial portion of the running time is action. It feels like the last 40 minutes, and I know that's an exaggeration, or the climax, yeah. but like it is so packed with different uh, sequences all in this big giant warehouse cutting between everybody and everyone is doing something different and I think that's like the most important part of a movie like this is like how can you find variations on a theme and make it exciting yeah and how do you build it how does it have peaks <clears throat> and valleys how do you take advantage of the possibilities of the space like there's one sequence where eric uh jacobus who stars in the film fights an opponent played by andy lung in a dojo and you can tell that when they came to the sequence they went all right what is going to define this and make it different from the other ones will be acrobatics because mm. that sequence they're like flipping and turning and do, doing so much crazy shit that's only in that scene so that's how it's different from everything else mm -hmm. while it's still telling an insane story and also providing a level of like physical wonderment that you can't find anywhere else by the way i really liked the bloopers at the end of this movie <laughs> because they're not as fun as the bloopers in a jackie chan uh, movie. they're way more painful they're more painful it's it's like the injuries they have are much more mundane yes it's like they they fall and they hit their back against a step or something and it feels really painful <laughs> and you know the, everybody else in the scene will go dude you okay <laughs> yeah there's a sequence where um I don't remember if it's in the behind the scenes of the movie, but I know it's in the documentary on the disc where he jumps. He does like a crazy fall where he's shot and bounces off a bunch mm -hmm. of boxes. And it looks like he does it fine, but it freeze frames and points that he cut himself on a metal jagged thing. Mm -hmm. And he's just bleeding profusely and he needed <laughs> stitches afterwards, Ugh. which is stuff that you never really see when it comes to like Jackie Chan stuff. It's mostly like, oh, <laughs> I hurt myself. Yeah. yeah. Not the, oh, You don't see all the stuntmen who died. Yeah. <laughs> and whose deaths were probably cut covered up and like something like contour as well is that unless you're giving a very close viewing there's some sequences that like you won't even register unless you go wait now i'm gonna pay attention to this like there's one sequence in the climax where the hero and the villain are fighting and suddenly they start tying their ties around each other and it's such an insane sequence of events that if you broke it down it would make complete sense well to your point about why action sequences are underappreciated mm -hmm. the point of a really good action scene is to make it look easy yes and also like to be impressive it has to be like so dense mm -hmm. that it like moves too fast for you i mean there's many instances like that in this movie but i mean a movie like rumble in the bronx when jackie chan projects himself through a shopping cart it's mm -hmm. half a second on the screen yeah but, like you don't stop to consider how physically difficult that would be mm -hmm. to do you know because like i was thinking about this while i was watching it as well as like what is the difference between an insane sports feat and a feat that's done in the movie like mm. contour right yeah like why does society put value in one thing and devalues the other one and like I think it's the idea that it's like, oh, it's in the moment it happened and like it has stakes because there's points and they need to win. Yes. While the other one is like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Like they probably did it for days or they had three takes, not understanding the level of risk that goes into doing stuff and the level of skill to pull this shit off. Yeah. In an action movie, the stunt is its own reward, mm -hmm. uh, whereas in 
a, a sporting event, there's the catharsis of getting a yes. point. Yeah. And because I said something like contour, the story matters so little that you need to invest in the action scene itself. And mm. I think a lot of people have difficulty doing that. Yeah. Because, like, when I was a teenager, I could just, like, skip through a Hong Kong film, or, like Angel Terminator 2 or something like that, <laughs> and be like, oh, wow, like, this sequence, I want to show my friends this, and hope that the storytelling within it is enough to make them go like, wow, as opposed to having to watch the entire movie to get stakes and, as you said, catharsis in it. When I got my digital camera at Christmas, the first thing I did was go with my cousins in the basement and we shot a martial arts fight with, like, sticks and stuff like that. And then when I got back home, I got my friends and we shot action scenes. (laughs) Like, I think maybe it's just, like, because action movies were a way for me to enter into cinema and it's so, like, impactful right on the surface that people can understand that that's why I wanted to make movies like this. I remember putting so much baby powder on someone's fist and then him, like, miming, punching my friend to the point that his face just looked like a clown because it just was covered in baby powder. I remember making movies as a really little kid, like senior <laughs> kindergarten, um, and, you know, pretty much the only actor at my disposal was my dad. <laughs> and it's very hard to choreograph a fight scene between, you know, a senior kindergarten child and a man who is six foot three. <laughs> it was like uh, Bruce Lee versus... Um... Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You know, <laughs> had I the creativity to have, like, taken advantage of that disparity and been creative Mm -hmm. with it uh, would have been better. (laughs) So I think maybe like that's why I have like this anger when I see that the films like Contour aren't appreciated as much as Mm -hmm. they should be because like this is the films that I love and the ones that I made myself and then I look at someone who did it like the best you can do with no money and digital cameras and people are like "Ah, yeah it's fun two and a half stars and I'm like what do you want from these movies? Well why do anything I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Eric Jacobus and the stunt people they kept just like continuing to make shorts. Uh, they made a, another feature film called Death Grip, which I really enjoy. But the thing about that one is he almost took himself too seriously mm-hmm. to try to make like a real film that looks like mm-hmm. a real film. And because of that, it's missing some of the wild energy of something like Contour. Eric Jacobus also did stunts in A Good Day to Die Hard. He did. He choreographed a knife fight that they didn't use in the movie. Oh, <laughs> I know. Because you just look at something like Contour And I mean, I don't work in the business, so I don't know like the egos and the hierarchies, but like you'd think you go, wow, this person knows how to do this stuff. So we should hire him to choreograph or do previs on action scenes. And I mean, like Contour was made in 2006, I think around then. And it's only at this point now that like Eric and his kind of partners are working in like indie feature films but not like indie indie like i was watching sorry to bother you and eric jacobus showed up on screen i was like what is that him and i looked and they did stunts on it which is why that like there's a segment where they're watching a tv show and a guy's being punched in the face and it's eric that's being punched in the face there's a movie premiering at tiff called the man who feels no pain a bollywood picture and they choreographed the action in that film because the director saw a short they made called Rope-A-Dope 2 and he went, wow, these guys are amazing. We need to bring them to India to choreograph the action (laughs) in our picture. So I guess maybe, again, it's like a class thing, like, because they worked at such like a low budget level and because their stuff looks technically rough Mm -hmm. Hollywood players are like well they obviously don't know what they're doing while someone from India is like well they are from America and they're choreographing this great action so we should bring them over no matter what Hollywood's loss is India's gain yeah exactly and I wish the best for them and I hope that they're able to do more and more stuff in America I would highly recommend that you go check out Contour and Undercut and if you want to scratch that Jackie Chan itch Death by Aura Payaya is 
I, I mean, I described it as kind of the a night to dismember of kung fu films <laughs> because of how like incomprehensible it is. So you know, it's a different flavor. And it's barely an hour long. It's barely can't lose. <laughs> no, you can't. Do we have any letters this week, Justin? Yes, we do. And as per usual, you can email us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, the email is also included in the description for the podcast if you want to know exactly how it's spelled. This letter is from Marcus Scott, and it goes, Ronaldo and Clara and Dylan the actor. Mm. Hi. Love the podcast. I assume at least Will is a huge Dylan fan from discussions in prior episodes. Please see our Patreon Christmas episode for, for one of the greatest Dylan conversations ever. Suffice We're, to say, I am a Dylan fan. And Matthew Kumar is not a fan of Dylan's Christmas album. <laughs> is Will? You have to listen to the episode to find out. I'm a fan of pretty much everything he's ever put out. <laughs> so I wondered if either of you had seen Ronaldo and Clara, the Bob Dylan film, as I'm a huge Dylan fan, and wondered if it was worth the effort of tracking it down because it's a seemingly impossible to find film. If not, I wonder what you think of Bob Dylan, the actor, who gave such unforgettable performances as Alias and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and Jack Fate in Masked and Anonymous. Thanks for the show, Marcus. I have Ronaldo and Clara on a DVD-R that I bought from Suspect Video many years ago. It remains, sadly, unwatched because it's over three hours long. It may even be over four hours long. Is Dylan in... Like he, the star of the he movie? He directs it, he stars in I've it. And, and frankly, well, I mean, it was kind of a notorious disaster, but I kind of think like, how bad can it be? Because oh. Joan Baez is in it. Yeah. It's, it's from during the Rolling Thunder tour that he did in the 70s. Like, at least the music's got to be good. I think there's an episode there of like singers doing huge ego projects like um, Johnny Cash when he did that picture where he starred as Jesus. Oh, sure. And uh, the Beatles Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, you know, Britney Spears in Crossroads. <laughs> Crossroads. I don't know Thank if that's you. quite the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. We, we would have to do somebody like, um, you know, Glitter with uh, yeah. Mariah Carey. But what about him as an actor? Like, have you seen Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid? I'm actually ashamed to say I haven't, but I have seen Masked and Anonymous. I want to see Pat and the Billy the Kid. It's good. I have some big holes in my Peck and Paw mm. uh, knowledge, uh, but I do like Peck and Paw. I love Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've seen Masked and Anonymous, which is uh, hilarious and, and... Not good. Not good. <laughs> and... All of the uh, people who like it sound very tortured, <laughs> trying to tie themselves in knots yeah. to, you know, say, oh, it's like a Dylan song on film. And, and <laughs> like I, a late period Dylan song. The one that he plays where you're like, ah, oh, just pick up the guitar <laughs> when you see him in concert. That said, did I enjoy Masked and Anonymous? Yes. Of course I did. <laughs> it, it, I thought Masked and Anonymous has a couple of great songs in it. Mm. He, he does a version of Dixie in that movie that is great. Do, do and think- also him, just him lying around in that movie. <laughs> He has the, there's this scene where Bob Dylan is just lying on a couch in the weirdest position. <laughs> and there's another scene where like it's him and Cheech Marin and Bob Dylan just like puts his like foot up on a chair and, and he's got his knee up with almost like his groin out towards the camera. And it, he's just so weird looking, you know? <gasps> Did you see it went viral a couple of weeks ago that he was like on his tour bus going by Hollywood Boulevard and he like stopped the bus so he could go out and pose with a Don King impersonator. <laughs> and that, that photo of old Bob Dylan with a Don King impersonator went viral. <laughs> Bob Dylan living his best life. You know, uh, uh, my friend Chris Berube told me once about going to see Bob Dylan in concert uh, in upstate New York. And for some reason, he just put his Oscar on the piano. <laughs> 
concert. I've seen Bob Dylan in concert four times. Yes. With varying degrees mm-hmm. of, of him giving you what you want. It, has it gotten worse as time has gone it's on? It's actually like gotten better. The first time I saw him, he was not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then like he just stayed at his piano and never once looked at the audience and mm-hmm. had a big hat on so you couldn't even see his face. <laughs> but then with each time, he's gotten a little bit more interactive. Okay. Well, anyway, Bob we'll, get, we'll get to a, probably a Bob Dylan-ish episode in the near future. Also, mm. Sam Peckinpah one. Now yeah, that you mentioned lo- it. I, I would love to do Sam Peckinpah. So this week on the Patreon, the, I came to with the question, like, what is the point of film festivals? Mm. What does it mean? Like, what value do they have now in, like, today's world? And we just kind of discussed it. We asked ourselves a bunch of questions. We talked about our own experiences. I know we've talked about stuff like TIFF a lot before, but it was just, like, a very broad topic that we wanted to tackle. Most Mostly because I'm currently attending TIFF and I'm getting three hours of sleep every night. So uh, just something a little bit easy, but that we could also get very personal about. And next week, we're going to be talking about John Landis. Why are we talking about John Landis? Well, uh, I pitched the topic, actually. So maybe I maybe I should answer, you know, maybe I should put my money where my (laughs) mouth is. I I like John Landis. Yeah, I like John Landis, too. but, But, you know, the thing is. Looking at his filmography, he has an interesting filmography because, like, when you think of the 80s comedy, mm-hmm. I think you're thinking of John Landis. 100%. You know? Blues Brothers, uh, Animal House. Mm-hmm. Trading Places, Coming to America. Yeah, when people say horror comedy, instantly American Werewolf yeah. in London. And then a whole bunch of movies that are less successful mm-hmm. and, you know, the Twilight Zone incident. Yep. Um, just a guy who I think we don't regard as an auteur at all, right? Like, uh, I, I think I do. Yeah. I think because he came from that position of the Joe Dante, uh, he's a monster kid. Yeah. He's a monster kid. And he's a film fan. He was friends with Joe Dante when they were mm-hmm. like together in LA to the point mm-hmm. that they used to see every single movie that came out in cinemas together until according to him, one day they looked at each other and were like, we don't need to do this. And they got up and they just stopped doing that. Fantastic. Yeah. But I think that as a personality, he's fascinating. Like anytime that I see that he shows up on a podcast, which is very rare, or he does an interview, like I'm there. Yeah. Even if I often disagree with some of the stuff that he says, because he is very boisterous and loud. And so that's what we're going to do next week. Uh, we were making a list of which ones we should watch, and it grew because we we're like, well, we got to watch American World from I mean, London. The thing is, like, I kind of want to watch all these movies, <laughs> yeah. you know? We got to watch Animal House. We got to watch, like, the bad ones, like Innocent Blood, his vampire one, which has, like all of his films, a million director cameos. I know Dario Argento shows up in that one. Mm-hmm. So um, we're really looking forward to that. That'll be next week. And until then, my name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So, news on the wire recently, Burt Reynolds passed away. It feels almost suddenly, like no one told us he's sick or anything like that. He was going to appear in the Quentin Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then suddenly it's just, he's passed away. I was sad, actually. I would have liked to have seen him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, we watched one of his swan songs, if not his actual swan song, The Last Movie Star, for a Patreon episode, and I think you'll agree he looked bad. He looked real bad. And while that movie is not good, there's so many, like, sad scenes in that film that... Yeah, he's so, like, real in that film, mm-hmm. you know? Like, uh, and the movie doesn't bother to hide the way he looks. In fact, it really uses him as a piece of found art. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that kind of interests me about Burt Reynolds is that he's somebody who... People who lived through his heyday 
said this a lot after he died. He was the movie star in the 70s and early 80s. He was like Smokey and the Bandit was Star Wars, Mm -hmm. you know. And like Burt Reynolds was the man that people aspired to be. Remember in Sherman's March, we talked about this a while back, yeah. like the whole documentary centers at the end about around meeting Burt Reynolds as like a godlike figure. Yeah. And that's just so unfathomable to us because we're like, oh, Burt Reynolds, because he didn't do much while we were growing up, mm-hmm. that it feels like a superstar of yesteryears. And so few of his movies seem to have stood the test of time. And like Deliverance? Yeah, Deliverance, uh, the, the Longest Yard, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Boogie Nights much later. But, I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen Smokey and the Bandit. I'm actually kind of curious about investigating his filmography I mean, it bit. doesn't hold up as a movie. It holds up as a fun curiosity. But, like, but is he fun in it? Yeah, he's yeah. fun. Like, he's his, like, braggart personality. I mean, there's a lot of, like, quotes that came out when he passed away where he said stuff like, you know, my regret in life is that I was a coward when it came to choosing roles. I was offered all mm-hmm. types of stuff, like Han Solo. Uh, and he just decided, like, well, I don't want to do that. And because of that, he kind of got pigeonholed. And while he did try to, like, direct a lot of his own movies, he made a picture called Sharky's Machine mm-hmm. that he uh, starred and directed in, but he wasn't much of a director. Like, he was okay, and I think that hobbled him even more as he went along. Must have been hard for him to look at Clint Eastwood, you mm-hmm. know, still a huge star in his dotage. Uh, yeah, you know. and like uh, having kind of risen up together and famously, I believe they were fired together, uh, There, one anecdote goes, and you see Clint Eastwood remain a superstar while Burt Reynolds just floundered the entire time. But I don't want to make a film where they show up, they sit down, they jack off, and they get up, and they get out before the story ends. It is my dream, it is my goal, it is my idea to make a film where the story just sucks them in. And when they spurt out that joy juice, they've just got to sit in it. They can't move until they find out how the story ends. You know, I want to make a film like that. It's my dream to make a film that is true and right and dramatic. I think that may be the second time you've done that monologue on this podcast. <laughs> it's one of my favorite moments in any movie. Like, his voice doing that monologue is like a beautiful instrument. Like, we did a whole episode on Paul Thomas Anderson, but like, Burt Reynolds and Boogie Nights is so good mm, that you're God. like, Burt, like, why didn't you, like, do more roles like this? I mean, of course you heard that he turned down the Tom Cruise part in Magnolia. Ah. That would have been amazing. I mean, as much as I love Tom Cruise in that movie, could you imagine Burt Reynolds saying those lines? I I can't. It's It would be crazy to yeah. me, like him freaking out. I bet you he could do it, though. Oh, like yeah. if he had been given that opportunity. Well, those like motivational speak- speeches, yeah. that the, kid, the misogynistic lines yeah. he says, his voice saying those lines would have been so good. And it would have had like a different flavor because he's yeah. older and he's like over the hill. Yeah. So the character would have felt completely different than Tom Cruise does. Yeah. I mean, like Burt Reynolds obviously had a lot of fun in his career. And I think that was like... Yeah the most important thing that he did where like, you know, films like Hooper, which is just a bunch of stunts and him hanging out with Hal Needham, watch Hooper, The Longest Yard and Boogie Nights to revisit that Burt Reynolds magic. I'll watch Hooper. It also has Adam West. It does, yeah. In a world where Adam West is the superstar and Burt Reynolds is just a (laughs) stunt double. 